Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Facebook, the corporation, is worth nearly a trillion dollars. Facebook, the suite of apps that includes Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, is coming up on 3 billion users. But Facebook, the social and political actor in global life, is run by a coterie around Mark Zuckerberg. And it's this power structure that is the subject of a new book by New York Times reporters Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong, The Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. Their creation may be nearly beyond comprehension, but the leaders of the institution are not. And we'll talk with the authors about vaccine misinformation, populist politicians, and the Biden administration's new antitrust team. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Facebook happened to the world, and for the past decade, so many of us have been trying to figure out what that means for our friendships, our democracy, ourselves. Meanwhile, the company has never been more profitable because of its tremendous reach into the phones and minds of people around the world. Are the goals of its leaders, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, compatible with the country we want? A new book, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, provides the deepest look into the platform's upper ranks that's been written. Relying on 400 interviews of current and former employees and executives, New York Times technology reporters Cecilia Kang and Kong and Shira Frankel detail how Facebook influenced the 2016 election, the Trump era's dilemmas, the January 6th insurrection, and how the company struggles to create policies that can stay ahead of the challenges created by its own technology. Welcome to the show, Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong. Thank you for Hi, having Alexis. us. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having us. So as much as anything, this book is really a re-narration of the kind of recent history of Facebook. And we know a lot of the moments in Facebook's history, you know, the sort of boy wonder in his Harvard dorm and Sheryl Sandberg, a kind of different kind of wonderkin joining up. But you identify a key moment during the Trump campaign that set the stage for many things uh, that came afterwards. And we're going to listen to a cut of that right now. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States, 
until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. So why was this such a big moment in Facebook history? You know, we picked out that moment because I think anyone who followed the Trump campaign remembers that call for ban on Muslims. And Trump, you know, took that as a moment to to make his campaign stand up from all others. He also posted it on his Facebook page where it got enormous engagement. And people within Facebook, the employees of that company looked at that and said, wait a minute, doesn't that violate our rules on hate speech? And the executives had a chance to make a call. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg had that very moment in time to say, will we hold Donald Trump to the same standards on hate speech that we hold all of our other users? And they decided no. That one decision set off a chain of events that led to them creating a carve out for elected officials. And, you know, we like this example because it shows how so many of the decisions made by Facebook were really ad hoc. It's a small group of people in a room making incredibly monumental decisions. And what we want to do with this book is take you inside that room and show you what these actual conversations felt like in the moment. Yeah. Who were those players in that conversation? In that particular conversation, Alexis, there was Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Joel Kaplan, who is in charge of all global policy and lobbying, as well as Elliot Schrag and many people on the content team, those who actually decide what kind of content violates their policies and actually comes up with the policy themselves. And what we show in that particular anecdote is that that was the first time they had to contend with a political figure with a huge audience. And remember, at that time, they didn't even think, nobody really thought that Trump was actually going to win. But they also realized that they had to contend with the fact that they had a U.S political candidate who had a huge audience and whatever decision they made on that particular speech that he posted would be viewed very, very closely for policies going forward. And they were afraid of upsetting one particular party or or possibly showing bias by shutting down the post of a Republican candidate. We have in the book that one of those people in the room the Facebook executive, Joel Kaplan, said, look, don't poke the bear. Like Republicans are already suspicious of Facebook. They think that Facebook is very liberal leaning and its executives such as Sheryl Sandberg supports Democrats. This an important anecdote for another reason. It was the first time that politics entered so many important policy decisions at Facebook going forward and really underpinned Facebook's philosophy that it didn't want to upset anyone in a political position of power because ultimately those in political power could hurt the company. They could regulate them. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there used to be um, a kind of thought that Silicon Valley companies didn't understand Washington. They didn't pay a lot of attention. They just wanted to be left alone. But you show in the book that Facebook really developed a a very powerful lobbying apparatus. And um, that was what Kaplan ran, correct? That's right. Facebook right now has the biggest lobbying operation of any corporation in the United States. It spends about $20 million on lobbying, and that's just on its hundreds of lobbyists that are in-house as well as contracted. They spend so much more on other things that are sort of not counted, like think tanks and white papers and supporting academics. All of this, and remember, Alexis, why do people lobby? Why do companies lobby? It's to protect their business model. And we thought it was really important in this book to show how 
the central tension for Facebook, really one of the only forces that could stop or slow down or in any way affect their, the growth of their business was external forces and particularly regulators. I mean, and it's interesting because in the media over the last five years, which, you know, roughly is the, the period the book focuses on, you know, Facebook seems beleaguered, but its success as a business is really remarkable. I mean, they've never had slower than 15% year over year quarterly growth, except during the pandemic second quarter of last year. And if you bought Facebook shares during that bottom, you'd have doubled your money <laughs> uh, from then until now. And I, I wonder when you look at that kind of success versus the media narrative about Facebook, like what, what do you make of that, Cecilia? Well, I think you really have to understand the business model, which is incredibly powerful. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to write this book is to really lift the veil on what the company is. And it's not just what the company projects as a, a, uh, as a, a technology that wants to connect the world, but it is an advertising business. It sells behavioral advertising. And it's incredibly compelling for the millions of brands around the world who want to reach users. Facebook with 3.4 billion users around the world has more data and information about its users than any other company. And even governments and government officials that we've talked to say that they envy the amount of data they have that Facebook has. And it's important to understand that because Facebook not only has created this really, really powerful behavioral advertising business, it is, it also prioritizes growth and engagement. And those two things are like dual engines that feed off each other. When you have a newsfeed that surfaces the most emotive content and wants, gets you to want to engage, like, share, and post, and just view over and over again, the most sort of sometimes the most emotive for sure, which oftentimes leads to the most like salacious and the most rancorous sometimes content, then you keep coming back and back. And then what happens is you're giving more information to Facebook, which Facebook then in turn gives back to the advertisers. It's incredibly powerful and compelling business for advertisers. And that's behind Facebook's success. And what's happening is that all of that business growth is divorced in many ways from the public concern about all these other fallouts, data, data privacy abuses, election interference, misinformation. And what we try to do in this book and what we do do is to connect the dots and show that actually there are decisions being made that put that first category first, that business model. Sure. You know, despite the just enormous scale of this thing. It's like literally almost in, incomprehensible. Um, there is this tiny group at the top that's making decisions around um, Mark Zuckerberg. When they have a company and they have a, a technology platform that's as large as it is, how do they even know what's going on inside Facebook? Like what are the tools that they use to evaluate that? That's a great question. I mean, I think part of the problem, part of the pattern we show in this book is that they don't always know. They rely, for instance, on Facebook users to report problems within private groups to them. They rely on their own employees to bring things up in their weekly all-hands meetings. But even when those things are brought to their attention, even when the occasional whistleblower or outside academic and expert puts their hands up in the air and waves them around and says, hey, you know, you've got a, you've got a major issue here, they're still incredibly slow to act. I think for us, one of the, the patterns that surprised even us reporting this was how often their decisions were reactive rather than proactive. They waited for that bad thing to happen before they decided to start and try and change things. Yeah. 
Do you think that they actually are getting less of a good view on the platform as time goes on? You kind of identify two things in the book that makes me think that. I mean, one is more and more activity is going on in private groups now. And the second thing is more and more of the sort of decisions of Facebook's platform are kind of disappearing into their artificial intelligence and machine learning platforms. So at this point, do they actually could, even if they wanted to know, um, could they actually explore the system in that way? And do you find people in the book um, working on that? I'm so glad that you pointed that out, Alexis, because for us, that was such an interesting moment of reporting. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, for those who aren't familiar, decided to have this push to privacy. And part of that was trying to get people into private groups. The idea was that until then, Facebook had been this public square where everybody was speaking at the same time and you saw things just posted, you know, at random on your on your newsfeed. Now he wanted you to go and navigate into groups with people like you that had like-minded interests. The problem is that you're then relying on those people to self-report. Now, if this is a group dedicated to people who like to go skiing with their dogs, the content's probably not problematic. They're probably just talking about ski slopes that let you bring your dog along. But if you're talking about a group of QAnon believers, which is a, a conspiracy movement, or people who believe in, in sort of a extreme fringe you know, military movements, then you've got a problem because it's not likely that people within those groups are going to raise up their hands and say, hey, we're planning an insurrection. We're going to try and kidnap the governor. We're going to try and march on Washington, D.C. And so all of Facebook's efforts at sort of self-regulating itself weren't working in that case. Yeah. We're talking about an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination with its co-authors, Cecilia Kong, a technology reporter with The New York Times, and Shira Frankel, a reporter covering cybersecurity with The New York Times. And we want to hear your questions about Facebook. If you work in tech, can you share your observations about Facebook? Maybe you're an ex-Facebook employee. And if you're not in tech, will these revelations about Facebook make you change how you engage with the company, with Instagram, with WhatsApp? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more with the authors of An Ugly Truth inside Facebook's Battle for Domination after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination with its co-author, Cecilia Kong, a technology reporter with The New York Times, and Shira Frankel, a reporter covering cybersecurity with The New York Times. And we want to know your questions about Facebook. If you work in tech, call us, share your observations about the company. 
And will these revelations about Facebook make you change how you engage with the company or any of its apps like Instagram and WhatsApp? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I, I want to talk a little bit about the Biden administration's current skirmishes with Facebook around vaccine um, misinformation. And, you know, based on your reporting about how the company handles misinformation that's been placed on the on the platform, um, how, how do you see that battle setting up? And do you think Facebook's actually going to change in response to the administration's uh, demands? Well, you know, one thing we reported just last just a few days ago was that Facebook fundamentally doesn't have a lot of the data that the Biden administration is looking for. The Biden administration wants to know how prevalent some of this COVID misinformation, specifically that that is anti-vaccine, is on their platform. And it turns out that over a year ago, Facebook's own data scientists wanted to look for that. And they told their bosses, excuse me, they told their bosses, you know, please give us the resources. We'd like to start measuring this. We'd like to figure out a metric where we can even figure out how much of this anti-vaccine messaging people are seeing and the company didn't give them the resources. So we're now in a situation where the White House wants something that Facebook fundamentally can't give them. And you've seen that before, uh, for example, around the 2016 election and Russian interference. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what we saw was that there was activity occurring almost a year before Facebook became went public with it. And there were folks on the security team who were constantly issuing reports to their higher-ups, to their managers, warning of the kind of activity that they were seeing. They were seeing from 2016 some very early action of, of Russian IRA-linked people who are coordinating with journalists even to try to like give them hacked emails from the DNC to try to plant stories. We were seeing warnings from the chief security officer, Alex Stamos, to his bosses as well, the general counsel and Elliot Schrage, who was the head of the VP of communications, saying this is becoming a really big problem. You need to basically escalate this up to Mark Zuckerberg. And time and time again, that team, and I think this is the starkest example, were rebuffed or ignored or were told like, look, you know, this is this is not a priority. Um, and that was incredibly frustrating for for many people within that team. And it was also not the not an isolated incident. Over and over, there were in the book what we call kind of like internal whistleblowers, people who are really trying to warn of problems, to stir up change, to get the top executives to prioritize things like security and privacy and misinformation. And time and time again, they were not heard. What do people still not understand despite all the news coverage about how the 2016 election played out on Facebook? I think people still don't know how much Facebook knew early on. You know, the public found out about the extent of Russia's election interference really in September of 2017. But our book shows meeting after meeting being held, people internally in the company discussing this for, you know, eight, nine months beforehand. We have one startling scene, I think, in the book in which you have a Facebook PR representative speaking to a journalist on the phone in July of 2017 saying, you know, we haven't found any Russian ads. They just aren't there. And 
down the hallway, the security team is finding the Russian ads. Now, I'll, I'll note that this PR person, from everything we know, didn't know that he was lying to a journalist, but it still goes to show how sort of segregated that company is and how the security team can be doing one thing and the rest of the company can be doing another. And really how problematic that separation was in terms of the entire company not realizing the role that they played themselves in the 2016 elections. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. In the book, you have uh, someone quoting Sheryl Sandberg as saying, you know, she was put on this earth to scale organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I kept thinking as I was reading through the book was that they were able to grow the business. They were able to grow the server farms, but they weren't really able to grow the institutional capacity to make these incredibly weighty decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think you can bring that back to present day and this example that Shira just gave of the data team not even tracking misinformation on the coronavirus. I mean, it's it's like they're 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 fighting in two different ways. They're they oftentimes promote the fact that they're doing these offensive measures to fight misinformation and um, for example, by like labeling posts that were related to COVID and, but they're not actually tackling what is sort of the, the, and they take down posts. They, they say that they take down 18 million posts, but they don't even say like what the denominator is, like what the actual pool is of misinformation. That is like such a big blind spot, like not tracking how much misinformation on COVID actually exists. And it really shows that it's, they're contending with scale that's so large, but also they're not catching up with the scale with key policy decisions that will create safeguards to address the fact that they are of such scale. And never is there sort of a tapping of the brakes on, you know, in all of this, it's just push forward and forward and forward. So I'm just going to pretend that I'm Facebook here trying to solve Mm -hmm. this problem. And I think about something like vaccine misinformation and I say, well, the hard thing is that, you know, it's hard to know what exactly is true, particularly particularly for borderline things. You might be able to take down things that say vaccines make magnets stick to your head. Okay, fine. We know that's not real. But what about things that bring up factual things that are merely sort of misrepresented or decontextualized? Um, How are they supposed to label those kinds of things or or find them on the platform? You know, I I think Facebook likes to bring the conversation there about specific items and how to label things and pieces of content where people who study anti-vaccine misinformation say the problem is in how Facebook amplifies it. Yes, they want things properly labeled. Yes, they want things that are categorically false and potentially damaging to public health taken off. But for as long as Facebook has has existed. There have been anti-vaccine activists on that platform, and they have gotten very, very adept at using Facebook's algorithms to push their content to the top of the newsfeed and to create groups that are really, really good at drawing an audience. I mean, the um, Disinformation Dozen that was named by the White House earlier this week has in it people with followings of over 2 million people on Facebook. They have groups that, you know, you'll you'll join a group that'll just say something innocuous like natural cures for the common cold. And within one click, Facebook is recommending to you groups that are very targetedly anti-vaccine. And I think that's the danger. It's that that is problematic. It isn't, you know, how you label content and, and the nitty gritty of which pieces of content to measure. But when are Facebook's algorithms going to stop pushing people into anti-vaccine groups? Yeah. 
You know, I think one of the interesting things is that the entire model of content moderation as it developed, not just at Facebook, but across the Internet, was was completely ad hoc. <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. you had in a, the first person on uh, first leader of Facebook's content moderation team um, says basically they had no rules. But and I'm quoting here, one of our objectives was don't be a radio for a future Hitler. Um, <laughs> should. Should content moderation, the way that we've described it, this idea of that we're going to take down individual pieces of content, is that entire model actually a problem? And what would we use instead? I think, look, Facebook is in the business of, of exchanging content. And this is something that they did not look forward to. What I mean by that is they did not prepare for what it meant for what that meant and what their responsibility was. And one thing that we show in the book is the evolution of Facebook's position on speech and expression, and that Mark Zuckerberg is making almost all of the calls on the biggest decisions when it relates to speech. Um, They do have, they are absolutely hiring more people. The model, I don't know what it looked like, but it has to be much more robust. And the most stark example we have in the book is, in Myanmar, where human rights activists had warned Facebook for years that they were watching disinformation actually lead to deaths on the ground in real life. And that they that Facebook and that the reason why this was happening is because disinformation existed on Facebook and that Facebook only had one Burmese speaker in and not even in the country that was moderating content. Can you say that this one is, more time? I just want people to, yes. to really dwell on this, that at a time when yes. Facebook had rolled out their service into Myanmar, yes. when there was active violence on the ground against the Rohingya people there, they had how many people who actually spoke Burmese, which is only one of the languages spoken in that place? Just one? Exactly. Multiple languages and just one. I think eventually they, they hired two, but at the time it was one. And human rights activists pushed and pushed and were were really demanding for some sort of change. And they were giving them a lot of evidence of what they were seeing on the ground. And they could not even really get meetings with with higher executives. Um, They struggled. They were able to meet some Facebook people. And some people within Facebook were also trying to advocate for for these human rights activists. And they were rebuffed um, um, ultimately. That's the most stark example of at the very, like, I don't know what the design of a content moderation system should look like going forward, but it has to at least be robust. It has to match the scale of the content that exists wherever it is, like in, in whatever language it is. And you had some fascinating new reporting from sort of a private group that Facebook, uh, actual people at Facebook had established with some of these activists, which I don't think I'd seen reported elsewhere. Yeah, we were really lucky that people who were within, within that group were willing to speak to us. And it was interesting because in the reporting of this book, there's obviously been a lot of changes happening in Myanmar. And there were people whose names we had to take out from our original manuscripts because we didn't want to endanger their lives. They still live in Myanmar. But yes, these were individuals, activists who Facebook reached out to and said, please join us in this group so you can communicate with us in real time and tell us about problems as you're seeing them. And even when they do that, even one of them sort of raises his hand and says, hey, the father of one of my colleagues is getting death threats on Facebook because he was kind enough to deliver a charity, you know, to do a charitable delivery of rice to some Rohingya refugees. And now he's getting death threats. Can you do something? Can you take down his account for him or or mute it or do something? 
Facebook tells him, well, this guy's got to make the request himself. We can't take a request from someone else. And he responds and he says, well, he's in his 80s. He doesn't have a Facebook account. You want him to join Facebook so that he can then ask for, you know, mm -hmm. and just seeing them hit this wall. I mean, they are in direct touch with fairly senior people at Facebook and they're still hitting a wall trying to get any of this hate speech taken down. We're talking about an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination with its co-author, Cecilia Kong, technology reporter with The New York Times, and Shira Frankel, a reporter covering cybersecurity with The Times. I'd like to bring in Namit from San Carlos into our conversation now. Welcome, Namit. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, I'm Namit. I was a, I'm an uh, ex-employee at Facebook. I was there from 2011 to 2019. Uh, I was in the data science team earlier, and then I moved to a product management role in ads. So I saw the company working inside out pretty closely. And I, it's not a question, it's more of a comment. And, um, you know, what I've seen is, like, the internal leaders, they really care about doing what's right. Like, I want to call out that it's an incredibly difficult problem when 2 billion people are using the platform on an everyday basis, right? So the amount of content that's getting generated, it is too much and uh, you know it, it's from left to right and it's subjective something that's okay for you might not be okay for me and whatnot right and that is why facebook has been open for regulation uh, from the government as it doesn't necessarily want to make these hard decisions but the government has been slow to react here and that is why they formed an independent body made of teachers and lawyers to help them out with this right and the final comment i want to make make here uh, the author made a comment about growth and engagement right so that's not just a problem with facebook Every company around here, like Google, Twitter, they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to increase the number of people who use the platform. And I agree that should be fixed, but it's an incredibly difficult problem as well. Yeah. I want to leave it there. I, mean, I, I just wanted to, you know, the thing that's always been yeah. tough for me about this line of argument is just that Facebook created the problem <laughs> of having <laughs> 2 billion users. So, you know, it's always, I, I, I understand now that the problem exists. It exists for all of us, right? I, everyone on earth, this problem exists for. But the most plausible actor to have solved it or prevented it from coming into place in the first place is, is now, you know, kind of saying, oh, hey, we want the government to step in and provide an answer here. I, I, I agree with you, but at the same time, it wasn't started with that reason. It was started with all the right intentions, and I know Zuck really cares about doing the right things, but it is an incredibly difficult problem, and I know Facebook's hiring thousands and thousands of moderate, uh, content moderators to help out with this problem. I'm not saying that this problem should not be fixed. All I'm saying is I'm trying to bring awareness that it's an incredibly difficult problem when hundreds of millions content is getting generated on a daily basis. And yes, AI and ML, they, they try to solve with that, but that can only go far as 95% accuracy. Even that 5% leaves about millions of content that people have to review. Right, right. And I, and I you know, I, I, go, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, everyone knows that expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I, I, I know it's, um, it's well known, but I think that often people we speak to at Facebook point this out. They say the intentions were good. The leaders really do want to make things better. And I would, I would ask, you know, when you pushed, when Facebook pushed into all of those countries, when they made the decision to aggressively grow in all of those countries, was there anyone in the room who raised their hand and said, what can go wrong? Can we do this responsibly? And I think the failure to do that, and we have asked those questions, and of those people in those rooms, no one has any recollection of that issue being raised. And so I would just say, you know, 
the responsibility lies with Facebook. They introduced this problem when they introduced it. No one in the room said what can go wrong. And now it really is up to them to fix it because they're the only company out there with a trillion dollars and the means to really, you know, start to think about this problem creatively. And Nemet, I do appreciate the perspective. And I think one thing that I will um, add, and I'll ask uh, Cecilia and, and Shira this is, you know, we, we, it's hard to tell if Facebook would is a causal force in a lot of these things or is a conduit for things that would have happened no matter what company happened to grow to this scale as people got connected to the Internet. What, what do you two think? Do you, do you think they're causal force or mere conduit for, for these problems? I think it's really hard to say, and it's a great question, because just like bringing it back again to today with vaccine misinformation, the president said, and he did walk back, but he did say that social media platforms like Facebook are killing people. They are absolutely drawing a through line between the misinformation that they're hearing on the ground when they survey Americans and ask them, why aren't they getting vaccinated? And Americans say to them, I heard it leads to autism. I heard it's bad for pregnant, risky for pregnant women and unborn children. And they ask, well, where did you hear that? That's not true. And they almost always say, and this is what the White House says, the, the Americans will tell the White House, well, I heard it on Facebook or I read it on Facebook. I mean, first of all, at first, the, the, the former Facebook employee, thank you so much for your comments, because I think you are pointing to like the big challenge inside. And when you talk about scale, I I think a really good example of how even like this, how scale is to show what that scale is, is when after the 2016 elections and Mark Zuckerberg was really sort of surprised to hear that fake news or, you know, news or like basically unreputable news about, about the election was proliferating on the site. He rushed and ordered his deputies to like quantify it. As you know, like, as you know, as a former Facebook employee, the argument with inside is, data wins the argument and data wins the day. And they did, and they felt like it, they found that fake news, at least in their first survey, was really a small percentage, a really small percentage of the overall content. But that small percentage was tens and millions of posts that were fake and that were fake about Hillary Clinton, about Bernie Sanders, even about Trump. And that's a lot of content. That's just a very tiny percentage of the overall scale of Facebook. We're talking about an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination with its co-author, Cecilia Kong, a technology reporter with The New York Times, and Shira Frankel, a reporter covering cybersecurity with The New York Times. Will these revelations about Facebook make you change how you engage with the company or its apps like Instagram and WhatsApp? Do you believe that good speech can drown out bad speech in the Internet age of algorithms? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination with its co-authors, Cecilia Kong, a technology reporter with The New York Times, and Shira Frankel, also with The Times. And we'd like to invite uh, Hari from Fremont into the conversation. Welcome, Hari. Hello. Can you guys hear me fine? Yes, we can. Go ahead. All right. Um, I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in the tech industry. So I would like to assume I have a little bit more intimate understanding of privacy practices uh, compared to the average user. And for some context before my question, if you look at the Facebook earnings report, you would see that an average user is worth 4 to $5 in Southeast Asia or South Asia. An average user in the U.S. is worth 35 to $50 for Facebook. That's the numerical figure as to how much you're being sold for. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to actually survey people in South Asia. And my question or something that I struggle with every day is for apps like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Twitter, etc. How do you apply privacy practices, morality, ethics, when nine out of the ten people whom I speak to, you know, don't care as the financial benefit of using the service far outweighs the fact that they sold their digital self to the bottom line. You know, like people make free calls in WhatsApp with India. They don't have to pay their cell phone service provider. So they don't care how much their data is being sucked in into the system to advertise for them. So how, how do you how do you handle this? You know, it's a it's a difficult problem. Uh, and to the previous caller's uh, you know point, uh, there is the volume makes it even more difficult. But when the end user has this, oh, I don't care. Oh, I'm sold myself. It's okay. But you know, I get a lot of benefit out of this app. How do you handle that? Yeah. Shira, Cecilia. Yeah, we're so glad you asked that question. Look, we don't advocate. Um, in general, as journalists, and we certainly don't think that people are going to quit Facebook um, um, in droves. Uh, it's just so ubiquitous and useful. And as you mentioned, WhatsApp, both of us have lots of friends and families overseas. It's it's essential. You know, that's how we communicate. And um, we, but what we do think what's really important, and we really think that the public deserves to understand how the machine works. And what I mean by that is the business model and the technology, all the decisions that are prioritizing engagement and growth. And yes, other businesses around Silicon Valley absolutely do the same, but let's look at the biggest, the biggest kid on the block, which is Facebook. And if you, what we really want people to take away from this book is a deep understanding of what happens when they're sharing and liking, engaging at Facebook? Like what actually they, as using your terms, as sort of the, the customer, not the customer, but the, the product, what you're feeding into the business machine. And if you feel comfortable about that, and we also want people to understand why on the technology side, they might be seeing something that just looks crazy. And from a news, a purported news outlook that they've never heard of, like, let's just say like the the, you know, the, the Rockville Chronicle or whatever it might be, something that's not legitimate or authentic content and understand why is it that it's on the top of their newsfeed and why when they clicked on it, they got recommended recommendations for a particular group for whatever story that that, that outlet was was trying to push. I think that if people have an education, we believe strongly that if people have an education of how the company works and thinks deeply about it, and actually the good news is that we found that there is a lot of knowledge generally, but I think we really want people to go deeply to understand the actual ad business 
and the technology priorities and how the technology works. And then hopefully that will make them, we're not saying leave the site and we don't expect people to leave these sites entirely. We think that people might think about their behavior, however, on the site. Have you, uh, have you two left them? Now, Cecilia Kong, by the way, uh, yeah. Cecilia, have you, have you left uh, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp? No, I use all three. And obviously when reporting the book, I have to use all three. I have to understand how they work. Mm -hmm. And I, I will say I was really early user. I think 2006 is when I joined Facebook and I was prolific. I was sharing every single kid photo, everything, you know, just like every update about my life. And then I started understanding the company and the business more. And this is why we wrote the book. And I understood, okay, well, actually, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that kind of data being transferred out of my hands into many third parties, as well as to advertisers. And I thought more about my behavior. And I'll just say from a personal level, I just don't. I'm very careful and judicious about what I do on all the three, but I'm, and I'm not particularly active on Facebook itself, but I, I absolutely feel like I need to. And also I have to, because all of my kids, like, I don't know, clubs have Facebook groups. And if I want to be their school clubs, and if I want to be part of it as a parent, mm -hmm. I have to. Kara Rose uh, tweets, I'm not sure I can really leave Facebook be because it has become such a hub of online civic life. That kind of power can make us feel helpless. How much momentum do you see around breaking the company up? Is Lena Khan the hero we need? Um, Lena Khan, the new uh, chair of the FTC. The Biden administration's also put in Tim Wu on the National mm -hmm. Economic Council and Jonathan Cantor as uh, the head of antitrust enforcement. Do you think those all those moves signal a real move to try to break up uh, Facebook? Yeah, if there's ever a time for big tech to be afraid on the antitrust front, it's now. You have a Biden administration that has picked incredibly vocal proponents of breaking up big tech companies. And it's there's just no mistaking it. And it's actually been stunning for me, somebody who's covered this for, for quite a big time, for quite a long time. Um, that said, the... These individuals, Lena Khan at the FTC, Jonathan Cantor at the DOJ, and Tim Wu within the White House, they're limited to some degree by the laws that are in place. And the laws are just not updated for the current economy. You have laws that were written for oil and steel trusts that are currently being used and interpreted to enforce antitrust lawsuits by the government. And very recently, a few weeks ago, one of the federal courts threw out one of the lawsuits to break up Facebook, um, actually two to break up Facebook, one from more than 40 states and one from the FTC. So there's a lot of moving pieces right now in Washington. It's not just these trust busters that are in charge of the agencies. There's a lot of action that has to be done in Congress. There is not a lot of agreement on how that could be done. And astonishingly, Republicans completely agree with Democrats right now that big tech is too powerful and it needs to be reined in somehow. But once you really start going below the surface after that rhetoric, it's you don't see a lot of agreement on how to get there. Yeah, one thing I've always wondered about that support on the Republican side, too, is that over time, Facebook has become a, a platform that is pretty important for Republican political power. Um, do they actually want to break up Facebook? Do you, do you get that from your reporting? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that it's more they would like to continue working the refs uh, as, they, as they have done so effectively um, with Facebook through time? So I think oh, – go ahead, Shira. 
Um, you know, I think it's worked well for Republicans to take this attitude of, well, this conservative bias against us and the system is against us. That's been a really popular talking point for them. And we continue to see it as a good talking point for people like former President Donald Trump. I think Republicans are also, you know, very swayed by the argument that if they do break up Facebook, there are a number of companies, including, you know, those founded in China, that would very quickly take its place. And I don't think that's something that they want to see. You know, I I wanted to touch quickly on Facebook's sort of uh, rhetorical pivot to talking about the dangers of uh, Chinese technology companies. Um, And I wanted to get your take um, in particular on the rise of TikTok. Um, One of the key uh, arguments of your book, I mean, the battle for domination (laughs) is the subtitle, is that Facebook is astonishingly good at taking out competitors. Uh, they knock off its features, um, they hire its people, they go after the advertisers supporting those platforms. And yet when TikTok came um, to American shores, it seemed like Facebook was curiously uh, slow to the threat. What do you what do you make of that? You know, Mark Zuckerberg watches every possible adversary with great interest, including TikTok. And we actually have, you know, meetings where he goes to the White House and he warns them about TikTok. It's a, it's a great sort of talking point for him. You have to remember, you know, Instagram introduced features to try and mimic TikTok, which is something they did very successfully with Snapchat. Unfortunately, with TikTok, it didn't work the same way. And I do wonder if it's because young people have this feeling that that Instagram and, and Facebook aren't as cool as new products and whether that's going to ultimately work against them. I, you know, more broadly, I think we have to understand who Mark Zuckerberg is. Mark Zuckerberg is a person that always wants to win. He always wants to be the one with new technology at the forefront of every sort of new innovative moment. And and you see in our book from his like earliest days in high school through his college years and into the early founding of Facebook, he's the it boy. And I do wonder for him going forward what it's going to be like when he's no longer the one with the hot new company. Um, you know, Michael tweets, and I know this is a kind of widespread um, uh, opinion, at least among some people, the more that Zuckerberg deletes content in response to the concerns of government actors like Congress and Joe Biden, the more Facebook looks like a government actor itself, possibly violating people's First Amendment rights. And it kind of points out that this the, the, that free speech as a concept has been used very um, – Let's call it uh, aggressively by Facebook to describe its content moderation policies. And I think, you know, maybe the, the heaviest question that we can ask about it is whether Facebook norms, which kind of align with a more American strain of free speech thought, should actually be applied universally. Um, how much have you to seen in your reporting on how Facebook has approached that uh, topic? Oh, that's really interesting. That's pretty provocative. Well, Facebook has to um, abide by local laws wherever they have, wherever they operate. So in Germany, for example, they have hate speech laws. And in response, Facebook has hired many more content moderators and they approach every jurisdiction that they're in by abiding by the laws that exist there. So no, they don't necessarily take, they cannot take their free expression approach to every country, but there are two things that they, that where their their baseline sort of uh, belief in face free expression is is seen, and that's definitely culturally that the idea that you know 
any sort of moderation has to be really carefully thought out. And that from Mark Zuckerberg's point of view, he has this really interesting philosophy that more speech can drown out bad speech. That's how he's approaching, that's how Facebook is approaching vaccine misinformation. They're saying the more that we label and the more that we have influencers and other people saying that this, that the vaccine is good, that that will actually defeat the, the 12 well-known disinformation dozen that exists on our site that are also spreading information. So like they, so expression is a core tenet of their culture and how they approach their own policy. Um, and the other thing that they are, that they apply across the globe is a, a, a general approach that they do not hand over data to governments. Um, they do, unless they're asked for it, but they, they fight it. Um, so that's one thing, that's a little bit of a different thing that they, that they do sort of universally, but they also, in those cases have to abide by, you know, the local laws. And if sometimes they've been kicked out or shut down because of that. Sure. Anything you want to add to that on free speech and Facebook? Oh, sorry. I was, I was muted. Um, I think it's very, very difficult to do anything universally. And I think that's one of the problems Facebook has run up against when Mark Zuckerberg said he wanted to bring the next billion people online and launch in every single market. You know, I don't think they understood just how differently their product was going to be used in different parts of the world. The example Cecilia gave from Germany is excellent, but in Saudi Arabia, in the Philippines, in a number of countries across the world, there are very specific laws that Facebook has to respond to because freedom of speech in those countries is not the same as freedom of speech here in the United States. And ultimately, Facebook or any other social media company, I don't, I just don't think it's realistic. They're going to have one blanket universal policy. They're going to have to be very, very country specific. Um, you know, in the Guardian's review of your book, they noted that, you know, a, a prominent Facebook critic um, likes to say that the problem with Facebook is Facebook. Um, Jim writes, uh, you know, will Zuckerberg ever step down? And he says, I would be curious what the authors think about the likelihood of Zuckerberg ever changing his positions. By all appearances, he is an unmovable object. Specifically, what would it take to rein in his zero censorship approach? And the Guardian uh, review ends with, no, face, the problem with Facebook isn't Facebook, it's Mark Zuckerberg. Um, do you, where do you fall on this? Is the problem with Facebook Facebook or is the problem with uh, Facebook Mark Zuckerberg or something else? I would change the framing of that slightly to say that Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Zuckerberg is Facebook. This is a company that was created in his image. Everything from the fact that it's blue because he is, you know, red, green, colorblind. So blue is the color he sees most clearly to the decisions that are made every single day about content moderation. It, it's Mark's company. He structured it in a way where he has no oversight. The board is just there to give recommendations. Um, no one can force him to do anything he doesn't want to do. And so I think where the book ultimately lands is that if you want to see change at Facebook, it has to start with him, either accepting some kind of oversight or some kind of, you know, board or, you know, some change has to happen where he is not free to make decisions as he wishes with no one sort of sitting there, you know, being able to look him in the eye and say, hey, that was a bad call. You shouldn't have made that call. Can you, can you please rethink that? Can you please speak to these experts and rethink why you decided what you did? I want to bring in one last caller, Alden in Sausalito. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I have never used Facebook. I, I did not sign up in 2005 or whatever. I'm also a, a professional in um, 
uh, internet privacy and have worked on um, advising product design for many years um, in the internet. And I have been predicting that all of this would be happening. Um, not that I'm great or smart or anything. It's just that it was really obvious. Um, and I've been telling everybody um, and no one would really listen. And my curious, I'm really curious what the authors think. Does Do they think that, um, so the business model of Facebook, it, it has a natural uh, uh, implication. I do not see that it could have ended up at any other solution or any other outcome. And I'm wondering, do they think that Facebook would need to be composted or that it could even exist and not create these problems with the business model it has? Yeah. Cecilia? Yeah, I mean... You know, by the way, I think that if privacy experts and professionals like yourself were working more closely with the product side at Facebook, there, I'm not saying what, I can't predict what the outcome would be, but perhaps things would be at least a little bit different. And in our reporting for the book, we did find that many people on the policy side that that was a, said that that was a frustration, that there's a delta between those two sides. Um, I, you know, it's really hard to see how the business model can be stopped. And it's really hard to see how shareholders um, won't continue to find a lot of success with their holdings in Facebook. It's just such a powerful machine at this point. And right now, the the sort of effects, the sort of network effects, if you if you will, for, for actually the share price, if that's possible, are just so strong. Um, I I think what's if you ask some really smart people like Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote Surveillance Capitalism, which is a really fantastic book, she would say that's the only solution is that there has to be some sort of dismantling of the business model. I think as journalists, and we watch things go sort of, especially like here in Washington, things move in really slow motion. And if that were to happen, even on the regulatory front, I don't see that happening even in like the medium term. So it's, it's, it's an excellent question. It's, you know, the business model is so compelling and strong for all of those who benefit from it. We've been talking about an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination with its co-authors, New York Times reporters Cecilia Kong and Shira Frankel. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.